Hello, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. Lee here for a little bit of an intro. Just wanted to let you know we don't have a regular episode for you this month just because things got a little bit busy after my Z-Night retreat vacation, but we are bringing you a bonus episode in the form of an interview I did last month with Barbara Blomink about a wonderful modernist painter named Florine Stettheimer, which you will learn all about in this interview. I hope that you enjoy it. I also just wanted to come in to let you know that we will be doing our first live watch and Q&A session of the year for our patrons. We have a poll up on the Patreon right now about what we are going to watch. The date is kind of TBD at the moment. It's going to happen mid-June. I put June 18th on the Patreon, but I might have to change it to the 19th because that might be the only weekend day I can get off from work. But I am excited to watch something with y'all and then all hang out and discuss it and see what we thought and see what we thought compared to episodes we've done on that topic. The options we have on the Patreon poll are Bessie, Vita, and Virginia, and episode or two of Our Flag Means Death, since we uh, love to talk about queer pirates, and Frida. So go on over to the Patreon if you are a patron supporter, and go vote for that, and we will watch something together in the next month for Pride. I hope that you enjoy this episode. We've always been here, every single year. From ancient gays right up to today's See, history is queer Some think it's a new way But we've got something to say History is very, 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 very Hello everyone, it's Lee. I am coming to you on the feed today with a bonus episode. We are going to be talking with someone who is a really esteemed art historian and former director and chief curator of five art and design museums. And she has published a whole bunch of different works on someone that's actually relatively new to me, a modernist painter named Florine Stettheimer, who was a cousin of Natalie Barney, one of our favorites on this show, and basically had the equivalent of Natalie Barney's uh, Rue Jacobs Salon, but in 1930s New York. And so I really wanted to get an opportunity to talk to the author of the most recent and uh, really, really comprehensive biography of Florine Stedheimer. So I am talking today with Barbara Blomink. Hi, how are you doing, Barbara? Hi. I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be on here. Yeah, it's uh, it's really wonderful to have you. I'm so glad that, you know, you were able to kind of hop on for a little bit and just want an opportunity to kind of learn more about you and about Florine and kind of, you know, tell us a little bit about this really significant person that you've dedicated much of your career to, which is really exciting. So let's, you know, let's start with you. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about you and your background? Um, I guess I started in art museums when I was about five, because my <laughs> mother was an art historian and my grandmother was an artist who taught at Parsons. So I, I was wandering around looking at paintings very early and always, I kind of always knew I was going to be an art museum director. I didn't know women weren't allowed to be art museum directors mm. when I was little in the 50s and 60s. <laughs> so I ended up, I was a, a curator, chief curator at the Hudson River Museum. Mm. And this is sort of a bizarre story, but the director, who was a little bit of an idiot, <laughs> invited all the docents and the curators over for a brunch at his house. And he neglected to put away his collection of little plastic penises that he had all over the house. <laughs> and unfortunately, a few of the docents were wives of board members, and they were heartily offended. So they fired him. Oh, geez. And since I was a key curator, they asked me, at a very young age, I think I was only 30, would I be the interim director? I had no idea what the hell a museum director did, but I was the interim director, and I guess I did an okay job, even though I didn't know what I was doing, and they asked me to become director, and so I was one of the earliest women museum directors in the country, and then even though 
I really didn't like fundraising or board meetings or anything. I became one of the earliest women museum directors and stayed a museum director. But whenever possible, I um, very early on did as many women art shows and mixed cultural art shows as, as possible. But I also got my PhD. And at the time, they wanted me to do a PhD on something like Winslow Homer. Or, <laughs> and I just didn't want to do something that only three graduate students would read. And I happened to be reading a funny letter on George O'Keefe wrote, and she wrote it to a woman named Florine Stettheimer, and I'd never heard of her. So I went to find out who she was, saw these hysterically funny paintings, and just said I was going to write on her. And everybody said, she's not a very good artist. Why would you write on her? And I found out she was as well known as O'Keefe. And she and O'Keefe were the only two women artists that the Museum of Modern Art sent to Europe in the first exhibition of American art ever sent to Europe in the 30s. Oh, wow. Um, wow. So I said, I'm going to write on her anyway. And so I wrote my thesis on her. And in 1996, I managed to co-curate a first retrospective of hers at the Whitney. It was the first retrospective since her best friend, Marcel Duchamp, a rather well-known artist, did a retrospective of her at the Museum of Modern Art at her death in 1946, which was the only retrospective of an artist he ever did. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Which shows how well she was thought of during her lifetime. But anyway, she went into the basement of most art museums. There are four huge ones at the Metropolitan. And when the Museum of Modern Art just reopened, they dedicated a whole gallery to Florian Stettheimer. Oh, wow. So anyway, after my dissertation in this retrospective, a lot of art historians critics, museum curators wrote little bits about her and they kept lying about her saying she was this eccentric shy artist who never wanted to show her art because she was too shy and that she wanted her artwork buried with her when she died because she was such a weird eccentric <laughs> spinster all of which is untrue and I got so friggin angry that five years ago when I retired from museum work I said I am just going to set the I'm record so straight. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I did writing this big fat three pound. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's a, it's a really wonderful tome. It's beautiful. It's got really wonderful illustrations. Um, it's one that, you know, if I was having people over to my, my home and, you know, we weren't still in the middle of a pandemic, I'd be, you know, putting out on the coffee table and people go, Oh, what's yeah. this? Um, <laughs> Which I think, you know, the best art books are is, you know, something that just instantly draws you, draws you in. Well, it also, it, she also wrote outrageous feminist poetry, um, designed furniture, and was the first stage and costume, avant-garde stage and costume designer for uh, Gertrude Stein Ballet um, uh, Opera in, in America. Uh, and her poems, just to tell one little short one that I adore, are like little Miss Ma Sweet, little sweet Miss Mouse wanted a house, so she married Mr. Mole and got only a hole. <laughs> um, or, or just one more, I can't resist. <laughs> yes. they, they like a woman to have a mind. They're of greater interest, they find. They aren't very young women of that kind. Oh, wow. Right? Uh, um, well, yeah, I mean, you, you've given a little bit of context about Florine that, you know, she was a painter, she's a poet, she did stage work, stage design and uh, furniture design. And you tell us, you know, just for the for our listeners who might not know, just a little bit of a kind of brief background on her and why are we uh, talking about her on, on this podcast, this, you know, History is Gay podcast, aside right. from like, oh, was a cousin of somebody that we knew was, you know, very famously right. queer. Okay. Okay. Um, Florence Stettheimer was born in 1871, and she was born into a very, very wealthy family on the maternal side, one of the hundred great Jewish, wealthy German Jewish families of Manhattan. She married, her mother married Joseph Stettheimer, who deserted the family of five children and a mother um, when Florine was very young. The mother, who all had uh, like nine sisters, all of whom, again, were very wealthy, had one who lived in Europe. And when the husband deserted her, she took her daughters and they lived for half, three quarters of the year in Europe. 
where Florine very early by age six showed a real talent for art. And so she began to be tutored in art and went to art school and very quickly learned how to paint and draw academically as well as any man, which was very rare at the time for women to get art training. And she also, when traveling through Europe until her 40s, she was in Europe most of the time, went to every museum, every salon, saw the post-impressionist design, Picasso, the Cubist, before American artists did. And she wrote these hysterical diaries where she's saying things like, well, Michelangelo could actually use a longer torso. <laughs> but one of the things she did were sure, because she was close to all her relatives, which included the Guggenheims mm. and the Seligmans, you know, the wealthiest families in New York, but also her cousin, Natalie Barney, I'm positive she visited Barney and Barney's salon, even though Stettheimer, you know, wrote and waxed poetic about male bodies. Although she didn't believe in marriage because her father deserted her, she and her two youngest sisters never married and lived with their mother until their mother died when they were in their 60s. Mm. She thought marriage destroyed a woman's creativity. And so she made fun of husbands and of women who married. Mm. And she painted one huge cathedral picture that's in the Metropolitan Museum of Art of a Fifth Avenue wedding. And I have identified many of the figures by their facial features um, as famous artists oh, really? in the painting, including Charles Lindbergh. And the groom's face is very clearly identified and his parents and the bride's parents, but the bride's face, because now she's married, they're coming down the steps of St. Patrick's Cathedral. Her face is just a mass of white fluff oh. because now that she's married, Florine considered her a non-person. Oh, so anyway, so Florine never married, but she did attend feminist conferences with her sisters and she, I'm sure, got to know Barney, mm -hmm. and she became very comfortable with the idea of fluid sexuality. So when they left because the war, First World War broke out and came back to New York permanently, they started a salon where the most avant-garde artists, all of Alfred Stieglitz artists, George O'Keefe, Marcin Hardley, Charles Demuth came, but so did all the emigre European artists like Marcel Duchamp, Picabia, all the well-known ones. But so did Charles Sandberg, all the poets, H.L. Mencken, the artist, the philosopher, Isadora Duncan, the mm -hmm. dancer, and her uh, gay sister, all came to the Stettheimer Salon. And unlike the other far more avant-garde salons in New York, which gay people went to, but you weren't really allowed or encouraged to be out mm -hmm even though you were allowed to attend. At the Stettheimer Salon, you were allowed very comfortably to be out, to be yourself. So that was the big difference. The Stettheimer Salon was the one where the most bisexual and gay men and women came from the arts and from cultural life and felt the most comfortable because the Stettheimers spent so much time in Paris and were therefore comfortable. But Paris was the only place in the Western world where it was not illegal to be anything but heterosexual. You were actually put in jail. And Stettheimer in the 1920s made a series of portraits of her gay and bisexual male friends. And in a number of them, they're very funny, but in a number of them, uh, like for Virgil Thompson, the gay composer, she would add these funny little symbols. Like in his, she put a big, huge black pansy in the corner, mm. which was, of course, a symbol of a pansy, a gay man. He was horrified, but his friend, the art critic Henry McBride, said, look, anybody who knows, knows, and anybody who doesn't know won't recognize right. it. And then for the author, Carl Van Vechten, who was very influential in the Harlem Renaissance, she gave him a red tie and bright purple socks, which were, again, symbols of bisexuality or being gay. So, um, and, and actually for the dancer Nijinsky, who was 
bisexual and also was the only ballet dancer who was male who could dance on point. She painted him as uh, both female and male. And she gave him, put him in a costume where he's got, looks like he has breasts and a tiny waist and is dancing on point, which is mostly what female ballet dancers did. He was the only male who could do that. But she also gives him hairy armpits and a large Adam's apple and these big male thighs. Mm. So she paints him as male, female. Right. Just kind of exploring that fluidity there. Yeah. You keep describing Florine's art as, you know, that so many of these are funny, that she has a wit to her in these in these portraits. You know, if you were to describe Stettheimer's art style kind of in one sentence, what would it be? You said also in the beginning, right, that people were like, oh, you know, she's, quote unquote, not a very good artist. Um, You know, what drew you into these paintings specifically? It's hard to do that in one sentence. <laughs> when, when she was coming back to New York City in 1914, she had been trained in traditional European academic painting. And the avant-garde painting at the time was either abstract, cubism, post-impressionism, Cezanne, and that style, pointillism. And she tried those styles. Or it was Georgia O'Keeffe, you know, slight realism, but that kind of modernism. Mm. She saw, came to New York Harbor, and she saw all these skyscrapers being built and saw New York City, and that wasn't happening in Europe. Europe was still very traditional architecture. And New York City was full of skyscrapers. All had just been built. And the skyline looked so totally modern. And she said, this is the new century. I am going to create an art style. And I am going to capture the excitement of the people and the avant-garde and the look of the 20th century New York. And in order to do that, she couldn't paint abstractly and she couldn't paint like the modernists like O'Keefe and Hartley, who did these big close up, simplified, modern paintings without people. So she had to create a new style. And she also couldn't paint like this massive masculine regional style that Thomas Hart Benton were doing. So she thought back and she decided based on the ballet russe that she'd seen and and those great colorful primary costumes and this integration of theater and costume and music, which was very feminine. What was the most avant-garde idea she could think of? Even though everyone used the word feminine as a negative term, she decided her most avant-garde style she could make as a new style that was unique was to create a feminine style because mm. she was a feminist that was based on as though it was a theater set of people and excitement and bright colors of images of New York City and the avant-garde characters, her friends, the salons, the artists. And she she actually painted the actual buildings and events of New York. You can identify all the buildings in her paintings. And most of the people are portraits, even little tiny faces. And her paintings are like you, as though the curtain opened on a stage and everything was frozen for a moment. And in some paintings, you actually have curtains. So in one sentence, Florine Stettheimer painted the avant-garde characters and documented the imagery of avant-garde New York City between the world wars. Yeah, it's so interesting that you say, you know, the the curtains are such a a common motif. And it's as though the figures are are frozen in motion. Yeah, it's like you're 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 coming in on on a moment in time. Um, which right. I imagine is kind of what it would have been like to, you know, walk into a salon and just be right. immersed in in a whole different world and a world that once you leave the doors of that place, you know, you have to go back to pretending you're a certain way and of a certain life. And, you know, I, I think, um, right. yeah, looking at these, there's a lot of free is, is a is a really yeah. good way to kind of 
And, and in 1920, women got the vote. And within a few years, she did two paintings, big. And her paintings are huge. They're 60 by 50. She did two paintings that are women. They're totally subjects no one else painted. They're women of her cl- upper class in totally women's environment. One is women in Bendel's apartment store, which still exists for wealthy women, but it's a sale day where things are on sale. And when women go into an apartment store and they try on a dress, it often gets caught in your hair or you can't get the zipper or you try to see what your ass looks like (laughs) from the back. And so you do this kind of dance where you get all, and that's what she paints. So they're it's the inside of a department store and there are all these women twirling around or trying to get the dress and tugging it or getting it caught in your head or contorting themselves. And in the middle, there's a table with all these scarves and the women are literally leaping over the table, trying to grab the scarves away from each other. Now, who else paints that subject, right? Or there's another painting of a woman only swimming pool where the women in the pool are naked and they're lying on these what looks like oyster half shells. I saw like that one. I was, on the half I'm like, shell, this is so delightfully right? gay. <laughs> right. And only the only man in the painting, well, there's some music, black musicians on the side, but they're off, curtained off. The only man is on the right, and he's this big, yeah. hunky guy showing up. He's an exercise instructor, and there are these women running around him exercising, including a really chunky one who's pushing up her breasts, holding them up to try to get his attention. And she does this all the time. It's a total sexual reversal. The Men are the sex objects, mm. not the women. Yeah. So she does a gender reversal. Well, it's, it's so interesting that you say that. Yeah, there's, it's you kind of one of the first things that I've seen, at least in the fine arts world, of this the female gaze. And she, she, you know, not just in this one, but she, she did some pretty controversial and provocative other, other kind of sexually explicit works. Could you talk a little bit about some of those? Well, the, the, the most outrageous one, she did this nude self portrait of herself. I discovered it in a box of paintings in 1995 that said not by Florine Stettheimer that was with her estate works. Mm. And I mean, it, it's, there were only two nude self-portraits by women that have since been found that were painted before hers. And the one by Paula Moderson Becker, who is considered the first woman to paint a nude self-portrait, is very much the traditional presentation pose where a nude woman is standing with fruit in her arms, so presenting forward to Mm -hmm. a man. The second one wasn't identified as the artist for many, many years. And that's by Suzanne Valadon, French artist, where it's a painting called Adam and Eve, where it was only fairly recently discovered that the Eve is actually the artist and she's with her 30-year-old younger lover as Adam. Well, the third one is this painting Florine did at age 46 of herself in the same pose as Manet's picture of the prostitute Olympia. Mm. So here's this 46-year-old wealthy Jewish woman painting herself the same pose as a prostitute, only the prostitute Manet painted her prostitute with her hand covering her pubic hair. This 46-year-old wealthy woman shows her bright red pubic hair. In fact, she holds her bouquet right over it to make sure your eyes see it. And instead of having this sort of more demure gaze, she's holding her head in her hand and looking out at you like, really? I dare you. Totally. Yeah, it's totally a painting of a woman's experience of her body from a woman's gaze. And it is a completely feminist painting. And I think it is one of the first totally conscious feminist paintings. It's from 1915. It's an outrageous... Women who were born in 1871 had a average lifespan of about 46, 47 years. She was 46 when she did this, so she would have been considered an old woman. But she's painting herself young, 
But I mean, to show herself this at this time, women, when they went to the beach, had to wear wool, black wool stockings and black wool bathing dresses that went down their thighs. They couldn't show any skin. And here she is showing herself naked with bright red pubic right. hair. But that's not the most outrageous picture. Doing this book, I found another painting she never exhibited that she painted of her two sisters sunbathing and showering in a uh, an estate garden they rented for the summer. And when I look very closely at the one painting of her younger sister lying on a towel, she has red strapped shoes on and nothing else. <laughs> and I thought she was just lying there naked, but then I really zoomed in between her legs. Florine painted the two lines of her labia wide open. Wow. And there is no painting from 1920 no. of a woman's genitals open to the sun. The, close, the closest. by any woman artist that I right. know. The closest you get is Georgia Except- O'Keeffe. And she even was like, I was just painting flowers. Exactly. And I've dared every art historian. On, on, I wrote it on Facebook and I've said it in lectures now since then. Just tell me any woman artist before 1960 who painted a woman's labia without pubic hair, which makes it even worse or better, whichever, before, you know, the, uh, around 1920, other than right. this painting. It's outrageous, especially for an unmarried, wealthy Jewish society woman, right. you know, and especially one who all the critics and curators still write was a shy, introverted spinster. I mean, they did the same for Emily Dickinson. It's the same. You know, I I get angry every time I hear that. And it's like, or. Right. (laughs) Right. Which is why I wrote the damn book. (laughs) Well, yeah. um, uh, Speaking of that, this is is not your first work on Florine Stettheimer. What makes this particular biography of her significant and, and different from other works that you've published before? What do you hope that people will take away from it? The first book, which I wrote in 1995 as my dissertation, there was nothing on her except this weird 1960 book on her written by a drama critic who only met her once that was written in purple Freudian prose. That's the one that said where he admitted that he made up all this stuff Mm. about her but that an exaggerated stuff. And he's the one who said things like, well, she probably wanted everything destroyed with her when she died. But then a few pages later, he said, no, in her will, she made clear that she wanted everything left to her sisters because they knew that she wanted everything uh, donated to museums when she died. So he kept contradicting himself. But What would you think the media finds more interesting? A professional artist who knows her work will end up in art museums because for years, MoMA, she showed at the first Whitney Biennial. Mm. She showed in all the early MoMA shows, right? So which is the media going to be more interested? An artist who wants her work destroyed or an artist who knows her work is going to be accepted by all the museums when she dies, which it was. Right. They donated it to all the museums and they all accepted Mm. it. Chicago Art Institute, Baltimore Art Museum, Detroit Art Museum. They all have Stedheimers because they were all donated when she died and they all were happy to have them. So everybody just refers to the exciting parts of that book. So my first book, no chronology of her life had ever been written. And I discovered a lot of works by her and I dated them and I put them in order and I wrote about her life. But I didn't know she was a feminist. I didn't create context. I didn't know that a number of her works deal with anti-Semitism, anti-segregation, women's issues. I didn't understand that all her life, she read only books about powerful women, biographies that she read all the early books of the time about early feminism. I didn't explore Uh, gay rights at the time, and that these portraits, the issues of fluid sexuality that she was supporting, which she was. So this book, I really read every painting and put in a context. Mm. So my first book is maybe 
250 pages. This one is 500. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like we said, comprehensive. Book, yeah. Right. The first book has little illustrations. This has 110 almost full page illustrations. And I corrected some mistakes and things I didn't know in the first what book. Was, what was your process on diving more completely into her life and kind of putting that together? Uh you, you said that you had, you know, seen a couple of different pieces that hadn't been found before that you had found reference to in boxes or things like that. Like, did you speak to her estate? Like, what was what was your research process? Oh, that, I, I had the first time I actually got to talk to her lawyer and Virgil Thompson and a number of her friends before they mm-hmm. died. When that was in 1990s, um, I was a baby, <laughs> of course. But um, and they've all passed away since then. But I'd also read her diaries and her letters. This time, I actually went to all the references in her diaries. Oh. So I looked up every book she read. You know, I looked oh. up every reference in her diary, and I checked every fact. And I checked everything everybody had written about her and then rechecked those facts to make sure what they'd written about her was right. And frankly, mostly I really looked at every detail in her paintings. So people say, oh, she did decorative fantasies. Well, actually, what I I'll, I'll give you an example. There was one painting that of that for years they said was a painting of Rockefeller Center. Well, when I looked at it, Rockefeller Center hadn't even been built yet, mm. but this painting was up at Yale. But when I really looked at the painting, there was a tiny figure of a column with Christopher Columbus on the top of it. And I said, wait a minute, if anybody really looks at this painting, it's Columbus Circle in Manhattan. And I really looked at old photographs of Columbus Circle. And you could identify each of the buildings, which were there at the time. And in fact, she has little photographs of little automobiles in the ground floor of the buildings. And when I read up on Broadway, at the time, Broadway was called Automobile Mm. Row because that part of Broadway was where all the brand new car showrooms Mm -hmm. were. So she actually documented New York at the time, right? So when she did Wall Street, she put in Trinity Church, which is one of the oldest buildings in New York, which is right there in Wall Street. When she, she, you know, she put the lions outside the library at, at the big public library down on Fifth Avenue. You know, everything when she did a guy standing in a military uniform, she wrote to the Navy and asked them to send a picture of one of their uniforms <laughs> so she could replicate it. She went and when there was, she wanted to put a singer great. I can't remember her last name, something in one of her pictures. So she found out when she had a hair appointment, she had her (laughs) hair done the same day. But that's how, so she, she didn't paint decorative fantasies. That's one of these marginalizing things. She painted her life, you know, she painted New York. Exactly. What was New York like? Between the world wars, what was going on? What was exciting? What what did it feel like? What did it look like? What was going on that, you know, what was the pulse, the excitement, the avant-garde, the new stuff going on? And she, you know, what were, what did the new movie theaters look like? That's what she painted. If you go to the Metropolitan, she painted four huge paintings she called her cathedral. One is Broadway and the new talking movie theaters. One is Wall Street and the new financial district. One is this Fifth Avenue, St. Patrick's, the Society Wedding for the Rich. And one is a painting of the Metropolitan Museum with this huge staircase in the middle, the Whitney Museum on one side and the Museum of Modern Art on the other, where the Picasso painting, the lions have taken off and they're they're playing in the middle of the hallway. And the Mondrian painting is on the floor and some little Cupid is playing hopscotch (laughs) on it, you know. It's like she's painting New York and it's all it's exciting, you know. I mean, that's that's a perfect kind of segue into another question that I had, which is, you know, you're you're an art historian and that's such a such a a specific kind of locus of like looking at the world around us. Why do you think looking at history specifically through the lens of art and creative expression is significant? What do you think we can learn about the world through art and also the people who have been making it? Okay, that's a huge question, and I'm going to start it backwards. For me, after 
being in art for so many years, when people ask me what makes art important across cultures and centuries, I say, I think and believe it's the works that have something universally human in it that touches us, that when we look at it, takes us out of ourselves for a minute. If we really stop and look and we don't read the label, I hate labels, and we don't listen to an audio guide, but we just stop and we look at the piece. And it doesn't matter if it's a little pre-Columbian piece or an old master painting or a contemporary painting or a contemporary something. If we look at it and it somehow touches us and makes us feel something that takes us out of the moment. That's something universal that is human, that transcends time, culture, race, whatever. And that you can't put into words. It's uniquely creative. That some human being made. And that that means that we're communicating with another human being, regardless of the time and the culture and whatever. And that's amazing if you really stop and think about it. You know, even though it's 300 years ago or 50 years ago or a thousand years ago, somehow they made something and we're feeling something because of that. So that's astonishing to me. I think that somehow I find that very courageous. I'm not a creator. So to me, to give me a blank something and say, make something, to it, that's so courageous. Because I see so much shit out there. <laughs> the, the idea of my adding my shit because I'm not talented in that way. Oh, my God. I don't want to add to all that shit. So I think people who have the ability to create something visual where they want to express something is a courageous act. And where someone has created a body of work, where they've put themselves and their feelings and their vocabulary and their thoughts into a whole cohesive something where we can look back at it and they've captured a whole world and they can make us laugh and think and see things and spend time. And with Stedheimer's paintings, you see hundreds of things in these one paintings, even if you don't know who any of the figures are. I mean, in, in this painting with the wedding, she's got a little altar boy who's got his little scepter and he's peeking under the bride's dress like he's <laughs> trying to sneak a look at her underwear, you know, and another corner there's another altar boy who's about to bash a dog with his little oh, you know uh, thing i mean it's like what what the hell you know but she's capturing all these parts of daily life in there and it's like yeah okay that's life going on and it's back in the 30s and that's a little that's something that's a, wow i just think that that ability is amazing so I don't know if I've answered your question. Uh, no, I, th I think I think you've answered talking. very well. <laughs> uh, um, okay. Do you do you have like a particularly uh, favorite anecdote or story from Florine's life? I mean, you know, you were telling me the stories of her. Uh, oh yeah, there's there's one there's one that um, I love. Um, there are lots that I love, but there's one where she's on a train and she's going with her sisters. They loved, even though they were Jewish, they loved. Catholic churches because they loved the ritual. And so she was going to, they were going to the place in France called Lourdes, where you would go and they'd have these curative waters where you would supposedly be cured from your terrible illnesses. I, I don't know how, but supposedly you'd go in the waters and you'd suddenly be cured. And um, as the train pulled up, there was a hill and she saw all these crutches that had been discarded by people who went in the waters and suddenly they didn't need them anymore. And uh, suddenly among all the crutches, she saw these corsets. They were also all lying there. And she wrote in her diary, you know, I abandoned my corset a number of years ago, but it never occurred to me to donate it to the church. <laughs> So I love that. That's a good one. Anyway, um, yeah. So there is a lovely, very sad poem that um, I'm hoping to find here. I think one of the things that I think is the saddest about her and her life is that she and her younger sister, even though 
they lived together for with their mother for so long, didn't get along. And when she died, one reason that it's so hard to really get a sense of her personality is that when her sister went through her diaries and hacked out huge parts mm. of it. So whenever she got personal and talking about a man or a love or anger or anything, her sister just hacked out those big chunks of her diary. So the only thing we really have are the parts that she didn't hack out and her poetry. And this is one of the most personal poems that I'm going to read because I think it's, um, you know, so much of her work is humorous and so many of her poems are interesting and funny, but, but here's one that's not. Occasionally a human being saw my light, rushed in, got singed, got scared, rushed out, called fire, or it happened that he tried to subdue it, or it happened he tried to extinguish it. Never did a friend enjoy it the way it was. So I learned to turn it low, turn it out. When I meet a stranger out of courtesy, I turn on a soft pink light, which is found modest, even charming. It is protection against wear and tears. And when I'm rid of the always-to-be stranger, I turn on my light and become myself. Oh, wow. That's so poignant. It's it's such a, a really yep. powerful kind of expression of masking in the world. Yeah. Yep. Um. I mean, speaking of, you know, kind of, you know, hacked out pieces of biography and, you know, hearing something like this poem and just the company that she was keeping, um, do you think that there could be parts that of, of her biography, of her life, of her own personal journey that you know, has been taken out of the narrative that could show a little bit more insight into her own personal, like, identity in terms of her own kind of potentially queer identity? Um, I'm sure not, uh, because she. there are a lot of poems she writes about male bodies, where she says, uh, and she always kept this naked statue of ma uh, uh, male Adonis <laughs> on her bedroom uh, mantle. But she didn't like the idea of sex. She called that French love. Oh, and she she really didn't, she didn't think that was um, very appropriate. So she liked the pining. And she did paint one painting called Love Flight of a Pink Candy Heart, where she's on a balcony looking down on memories and she has all these men who've come through her life, some gay, but who she cared about. And there's one man who I know she had a love for and a love interest in, and she thought he loved her over several years. And then he dropped her and she wrote a poem about how her love uh, splintered into a million pieces. But she did write one very short, she and Gertrude Stein, <laughs> even though they worked on this opera together, absolutely couldn't stand really? each other the first time she met. <laughs> and she did write a, just a five-line poem about Gertrude Stein that does make a reference to Gertrude Stein's um, being lesbian. I'm sure. going to read it. Gertrude, Gertie, Gertie, Gertie met a unicorn. It was black and waved its tail. Gertie roared a big, big laugh. Very male. <laughs> uh, but I, I guess when they met, they just, they barely shook hands. I mean, you have to, I, you know, here's Stettheimer, very fragile and thin and, and ladylike. And she just, someone asked her, did she like the writing of Gertrude Stein? And she said, no, I much, I don't understand it. And I much prefer Proust. Oh, oh gosh. That's so, so, you know, um, well, unfortunately, <laughs> I mean, and, and now that I'm not in the art world anymore, I, I say things like this um, at the Whitney, I was supposed to do her retrospective much earlier, but then they changed directors and the new director, called me in and he said we're not going to do the show because Stettheimer is just a fag hag and so um, I, I don't think of her as a real artist and so he canceled the contract and so I had to wait until another director 
let me liked her better and let me did do the initial 1995 retrospective. But I mean, that's kind of uh, yeah. the kind of in the 90s. So strange. I mean, what of I think that that's incredibly significant that, you know, what a lot of queer people weren't having their 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 selves, their styles, their lives, you know, um, preserved, you know, in, in an art in an art. Uh, you know, in an art style, being able to, that wasn't a privilege that was accorded to people. And so to be able to say, I'm, I'm going to be able to give you this gift of showing your full self, but we're also doing it in ways that, you know, people in the community will understand, you know, I think that's, that's hugely significant in a gift. And to reduce that to fag hag, like, fag ha- fag yeah, hags I know, are but that was, too. I know, but that was the, the early nineties, but I have to tell you, it's, um, uh, it basically for a long time in, in the early nineties, it was gay men and women artists who kept her alive. There was, there's been a real cult since the nineties of gay male artists and women artists, especially in a group called the pattern and decoration artists who formed kind of a cult, Stedheimer mm-hmm. cult that really kept her artist, her artwork alive and kept asking me, you know, when are you going to do a show on her again? When are you going to bring her back again? And they really have kept uh, a real interest in her for 20 years, which has been great. She, she constantly appealed to the gay male community of artists. Wonderful. Um, well, uh, I mean, that's, you know, near near the end of the questions that I have for you. Um, I wanted to ask, what projects are you working on now? Is there anything kind of new and exciting in the pipeline? Um, no, I, I really, uh, <laughs> I want to, I'm trying, well, here's the problem. People are not publishing books right mm-hmm. now. Um, on artists. I have, and, the, and museums are not hiring outside curators, mm-hmm. which is too bad because I have, no one has done an exhibition on modernist women artists. And I have a lesbian friend, uh, art historian, and she and I want to do an exhibition of international modernist women mm-hmm. artists across cultures, across sexual preferences of uh, painters and photographers. And there are so many, some well-known, some not known, amazing artists from so many different countries who were so innovative, just so, so interesting. Um, you know, I, it's interesting as I'm saying this, because now we really... I don't know. It, it sounds strange even to be saying women because a number of them now in the they're modernists. So if it was now, they probably and a lot of them probably identify as trans. Some of them, but that didn't mm-hmm. exist then. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I see that a lot with um, kind of retrospectives and a lot of uh, scholarship on artists like Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore. Yeah. That's, I mean, she's one. Of, there are people I would mm-hmm. include. And I think Claude needs to be. She absolutely. He whatever we, would we be actually, in a show we did like a, this. We did an episode on the two of them, and uh, and we we opted to use they them pronouns for Claude, uh, mostly because of what yeah. they they had specifically said about the preference for like if they were German and if they spoke German, you know, they would have the option of the you know the Neuter gender, um, right. Right. But yeah, I mean, we're starting to see a little bit more um, kind of acknowledgement of them. Um, I would say just a couple of years ago here in San Francisco, the uh, Contemporary Jewish Museum did an exhibition on Claude Cahoon. And uh, I actually recently for my work got to do an event with someone who just published a book on specifically their um, anti-Nazi campaign and right. their incarceration in the war. So, you know, there's some, you know, something kind of popping up here and there, but to be able to see, you know, kind of a, a huge collection of all of these these women and non-men and people who are kind of at the intersections of of marginalization and oppression in a in a heteropatriarchal society, I think is is something that would be really significant to see the It'd be yeah. fabulous. And because then and it wouldn't just be written by hetero curator, right. you know? It wouldn't just be my gaze. It would also be lesbian women written about from a lesbian mm-hmm. gaze. 
Right. You know, and so we think it'd be really important show because then we would also ask these questions, which haven't been asked yet. In in the about the modernist era, for instance, they, I mean the, now, of course, but not looking right. back. But we we can't find anyone to do well, it. Well, I, I wish you the best <laughs> of luck. I'm sure that you know that opportunity Thanks. will will come up. Um, uh, for our our listeners, can you let us know where uh, where else folks can find more about you and your work? Uh, if you you know do any sort of social media, well, um, yeah, on uh, basically. Well, two things. When I got sick of the corruption in the art world, mm-hmm. I mean, the museum world, the art world is corrupt. There are 600 artists that are shuttled from museum to museum to museum. There are 10 galleries whose artists are go around and are in all the exhibitions. They're mostly male, white. They're all the ones that get all the money you know, I tell young artists, create your own art world. Mine is old and corrupt and you don't want, you know, you don't want to be in it. So I left the art world and I'm now an actor and I'm in plays mostly. I've been in three small movies, but mostly plays, which I'm having a blast. I'm having the most fun I've ever had in my life. But I do, I do write on Facebook and when I'm not putting up how great an actor I am in what play, um, I write about how corrupt the art world is. And uh, so I have a lot of followers because I seem to be the only former museum director who does that. But otherwise, yeah, just look at the book. It's actually what's so amazing for an art history book. It's almost sold out in four wow. months. So we're doing a second printing. It's only $29. Uh, I yeah, I don't know the how they did, did that. that. This is this is one one it's heavy the tome. Most ridiculous yeah, this came thing. out uh came out January 2022. It's Florian Stettheimer, a biography, and it's beautiful. And yeah, so they're we're, they're already doing a second printing, which I think for an art history book is the most ridiculous thing. And the New Yorker magazine reviewed wow, it. Congratulations! I mean, how ridiculous is that? They did a seven page review. Wow. So I'm like. For a last thing done and as a big thing in the art world, I'm like beside myself. So I've done all I ever imagined being a director of five museums and writing this big final major tome. I feel my, my big thing was I wasn't going to die without setting the record straight on Florine. So now I'm there you done go. That. Now some <laughs> I'm now hoping other young scholars like write about her and and that she doesn't disappear right. again. That's my well, big Well, you've hope. certainly you've certainly brought her into my life and uh you know the life of our listeners okay. and I hope folks check it out. Um, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today. Um, it's been a really wonderful conversation and I've, you know, I feel like I've gotten to learn so much just about the art world in general too. Um, is there anything that you wanted to talk about or mention that we haven't already discussed? No, I just, um, I've really enjoyed this and, uh, you know, um, just keep encouraging gay artists. Keep encouraging fluid sexual artists to make work that speaks to others and and especially young kids who are not sure of their sexuality. Tell them to make art Mm. about it because art touches other people and it's a great way to explore yourself, find yourself. It's a way to it's a way to create and communicate and find a way to place your feelings. So it can help heal and it can help find yourself. So um, use it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been great. (laughs) 